Before we dive in, two things. First, thank you. Listeners like you are why we do this. Our team works hard on every episode to ensure we bring you the best content possible. Second, it's a gift-giving time of year. People ask us all the time, what's your setup or what's your favorite gear? We put all of our favorites together in our new generation leader gift guide. Find recommendations for those hard to buy for people on your list and get them something great this year. Find the gift guide at newgenerationleader.fm slash gift, and we'll keep this up to date all year round. All right, let's get on with the show. What's the difference in the culture between your frontline employees and your leaders and executives? According to Kyle, it comes down to the blue shirt leadership framework. And here at the New Generation Leader, we talk about leadership and culture being for everyone, that we want everyone to feel like they have a seat at the table and an opportunity to thrive and flourish every day in your business. This conversation with Kyle is a great look at the building blocks of high performance, especially when you have blue collar employees on your team. That's Kyle's focus with the Blue Shirt Leadership Framework. Kyle's an author, a podcast host himself, and he helps small business owners get the most out of their time, talent, and team. This is a really good conversation, and I'm looking forward to diving in, getting to know Kyle a little bit more, and for you to hear a little bit more about his story and what he's doing with the Blue Shirt Leadership Framework. Welcome to the New Generation Leader Podcast. We're giving you the tools you need to lead in the digital world. Ready to reach your true potential? This is the New Generation Leader Podcast. As you're working with your coaching clients, what themes are you encountering them bringing to your coaching conversations? Right now, there's three that come to mind real quickly. One of them is hiring. There's a lot of the businesses that I'm working with are growing, even though the market's weird, growing, and it's a pain for them because COVID really messed up the hiring process significantly for small business owners. So helping them to figure out a process to attract people. It's, now it's not people come to you, it's you have to go to them to attract them. I'm talking about an architecture firm and a company that makes a lot of money. And then this other company I'm referring to, they also are doing very well. They're not in the bad places in either case. There's money to be made, there's good opportunity there, but they're having to reach out. So that's one of them. The second is accountability. So people come to me and they think they want to be more productive or they think that they want to make more money or whatever it is. But ultimately behind that is they need better accountability and to know how to hold other people, but to create accountability in the workspace. And what I mean by accountability isn't punitive, it's responsibility. It's do what you say you're going to do and do it well. And then if you don't own up to it type accountability, and I have a whole, I could talk about it later, but I have a whole process for self-accountability that I teach people. And then the third one is transitions. What I do in my business, one of the first things people say is they start talking about transitions. Uh, they're transitioning in this way, transitioning in that way. And they want that thinking partner to help them in that transition. So those are the three. Those are three powder kegs at times of issues that, that people are facing. As you're walking them through the journey of hiring and attracting talent, are you finding any smart hacks that are shortcutting that process and allowing them to actually get the people they need and not just the people they need, but the people they want? Yeah, the shortcut is ask questions that get to character. 
is, is really the shortcut. It's figuring out how to get to character and do things in the interview process to get to character as well. So a couple examples, I work with a, a gentleman that runs a company that does landscaping, residential and commercial, but mostly commercial, and then handyman, mostly commercial. That's the business. And when he interviews somebody, he has them come in at seven in the morning. And if they can't show up for a 7 a.m. interview, they're not going to get hired, period. It's that simple. And so I've been recommending that because mostly who I'm working with is blue-collar business owners. I work with a wide range, but people that I've been working with lately are blue-collar business owners, hence the name of the business. But you get most of the time, those folks need to come in early, go to work. You got to come in really early. And so if you can't show up for your interview, there's no way. The second thing is I help them come up with open-ended questions. So you were just talking about coaching and the power of questions and getting people to think. That can be leveraged very effectively in interviews because that gets to character as well. So if I'm asking a question about when you had a bad customer service experience where you did a bad job, what happened and what did you learn about yourself? And that opens that person up to have to think about a bad customer service experience and then share about it. And then you flip the coin and say, when you've done a really great job with a customer, tell me a story about when you've done that. What were the features of that experience that you think jump out that made it great, right? Or however, kind of a little bit off the cuff with the question here, but essentially that type of open-ended question, because I've been in way too many interviews with supervisors or managers or owners where they drone on and on and on, and they tell people all about the business. And it's like, it's not really, I mean, you need to interview both directions. I get it, but you got to learn about them and their character, their experience. So those would be, there's many, but those two are really vital for business owners to learn how to not lock in. I think that's a really creative way to approach an interview. I was working with landscape construction design maintenance company, and they had a field supervisor who could not show up on time. And there were all sorts of ramifications that came beyond that out of that one beginning characteristic or or behavior. And so how do you mine for those behaviors? It's a really interesting idea. Yeah, because you're trying to solve a future problem for your clients. That's what I'm doing. If I can, what I want to do is eliminate as many candidates as possible when I'm helping my clients interview. If I do that, then I'm solving future problems for them because then they ultimately get the best candidate, character-wise especially, and then we've not had them bring in crappy candidates because in high-level job, a CXO-type position, I think it's 213% of the salary. That's the cost to hire someone. So if you're hiring someone for a $100,000 job, it's going to cost you $213,000 to bring them in, do all the process, and train them. It's really expensive. So if you get it wrong, that's disastrous. Even if you have a big budget, it's still disastrous. And then for the lower-end jobs, the 50000 less jobs, it's $4,200 per missed hire, plus the cost of training once you bring them on. And if they leave, you've spent $4,200 to hire them, and then you've spent money to train them, which I think is approximately $1,500. So now you're out $5,700 for a $50,000 employee, but then you got to hire another one, plus you already paid them to do nothing for you. That sucks. <laughs> That's terrible. So let's fix that problem now up front and hire once. So you got to get your process right, and you're going to save thousands of dollars because of it. Yeah, there's an often quoted phrase, slow to hire, quick to fire. That slow to hire can be really, really hard. Yeah, because you're usually you're hiring because it's a little bit of an urgent situation. And that's a bad way to hire, first of all. But it's reality most of the time, so I get it. There's a book by Patrick Lencioni 
and I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but the premise is about hiring and he has three criteria that they look for and they're humble, hungry, smart, and humble is character. Hungry is drive. And then smart is people smart. So empathy, emotional intelligence type stuff. And so if you evaluate your candidates and your employees based on those three criteria, then you have a leg to stand on to understand whether you should hire them or not. And if they don't qualify for all three, don't even consider them. Like if you want, as Dave Ramsey says it, thoroughbreds, then you want all three characteristics to be in place. Yeah, Laura, on the last episode of the podcast, talked about a different Patrick Lencioni book. So we've got this Patrick Lencioni theme, which is valid and appropriate because he's certainly worth paying attention to and learning from. So you talked about working with primarily blue collar businesses and blue collar business leaders. What characteristics set them apart that they're facing that may be different or unique as compared to another kind of business? Two things. One is they're actually in the elements often. So their team is in the elements. And the guy that climbs up on the telephone pole when it's snowing outside because the power got messed up from the windstorm and the ice on the wires is having a much different experience in the field than the dude that's a keyboard jockey. And I'm not against keyboard jockeys because that's what I am. But there's a much different experience. And so the employer or the business owner has to address that and give the people that do that physical work the appreciation they deserve because it's tiring. And that impacts their family life too. So when I coach business owners, I only work with them if they allow me to play in the world of their personal life too, because it's not smart to separate those two. And so when these employees go home and they're exhausted, that has an impact on their family. It has an impact on the way they perform the next day at work. So blue car business owners, Every business owner should be like this, but especially these folks, they have to lean into what's going on a little bit with person personally because of the physical exhaustion that the job causes. And of course, you can get tired in doing work at a computer. I get it. You can, and you do. We've all been there, but that's the thing that's very different. And then secondly, someone that's running a construction business or a landscaping business, they often find themselves, what I say is they have their boots in the dirt too much and they need their boots on carpet in the office instead. And so they always put on the tool belt and go do the work themselves instead of delegating and empowering employees. And that's a lot more obvious for construction business owners or landscaping business owners in comparison to someone that works in office, but they do the same thing. They put on their tool belt and do the work when they really shouldn't be. They need to be empowering people to do the work, giving them the resources that they need. So there's definitely parallels in both cases. It's just in the home services industries is a little bit more obvious when it's out of whack because the dude is literally covered in dirt at the end of the day. <laughs> and you know that, wait a second, you're the business owner. You shouldn't be covered in dirt when you have four employees working for you. What are you doing? That's a really good point. And that example from merely the trades of apprenticeship is actually a powerful example that really should be used across the board in developing people. but. You're right. When you are working with your hands and physical tools in front of you, it's easier to see the disconnect and the need for uh, practical apprenticeship. Whereas if you are behind a keyboard, well, I can pivot for five minutes. I don't even have to pick up a different mental tool, not a physical tool. Yeah. And the drawback to working like you and I do 
it's really difficult to see the fruit of our labor. Whereas if you're used to putting a house up or mowing a lawn, and that's how you started your business, you know you got results. It's obvious. And so it's harder to separate yourself from that work because you're like, well, what am I doing? I'm having meetings with my employees and talking about strategy for marketing. It's hard to see the value of that if you're so used to seeing that the bushes are trimmed or the house is painted, right? But they're both extremely valuable. It's just the mindset. That's obviously the key is the shift in mindset towards the CEO mindset versus I own a job mindset. The data approach, like Zoe talked about back on episode 25, there are questions that you can ask and explore to find out that the people side, and we call it the soft skills at times, I've seen it referred to as power skills and different from power tools, obviously, but power skills are necessary, but you're right. There's a different measure of success. And Zoe talked a little bit about what some of those measures are and can be and how the measures can point you towards direct effects, but it's not right in front of us. We can't see it with our hands. I think it's funny you mentioned that we just had our makeup family holiday gathering last weekend. And so here we are weeks beyond the holiday season, but we finally got together with everybody. And one of our uncles is in construction. And we were talking about the generational gap. So they're having trouble finding people because he's been at this for 30 plus years and is doing very well. The people who were just ahead of him are retiring and stepping out of day-to-day -day work. And they don't have people younger stepping in to fill that gap. And so it's becoming harder and harder to find help to get work done. So one for him, he can be very successful. But then it struck me as he was talking, and he and I talked a little bit about this dynamic that we face, that that hands-on work, you don't see, we don't see. You see it when you build a house. And he said, put up a new stairwell in a house. And two-day project, he did his work two full days. And at the end, he saw his masterpiece. And like we talked about a little bit ago before we started recording, there's a long future game that we're playing with coaching clients. And it's, it's a very different reality. It is the root of that to me, or a root, not the, but a root to that is how much this country pushes college education. They push and push and push college education. And then the other part of it is how much social media has sold itself as the quick scheme to get rich. Like you can get a hundred thousand followers or 200,000 followers and then make six figures or whatever. And pretty sure that Maybe 0.05% of people that are on social media actually make a reasonable living off of it. And then you have these crazy exceptions like Mr. Beast, who's making $10 million a day or whatever it is, which is crazy. What about your story and experience drew you into this blue collar focus? So my father is an orange farmer in California, and he started that business when he was... 20 something, I can't remember the age, but my sister was zero. <laughs> she was just born and he started this business and that was the only income that they had. He basically bootstrapped his way into now a multimillion dollar business that farms thousands of acres of oranges with his brother. And it used to be my grandpa as well. And that's in my blood, right? So growing up from seventh to 12th grade, I was working in the field in the summers and doing that work and 
in the rest of the year, I'm hearing my dad wake up at five in the morning, sometimes wake up at one in the morning to take care of the orange trees because it's so cold outside. There's something called the wind machine they use to try to warm up the trees. And that's kind of complicated to explain, but that history embedded in me, the work ethic and the blue collar mentality. And then did okay in college, loved my experience. But at the end, I was terrified of being an adult, just to be honest. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I was kinesiology and I was going to become a physical therapist, but I decided that I wasn't a good fit for me. And so senior year, I had forgotten to take some classes somehow. And so I was behind multiple units and I was super stressed. So I was 40 pounds overweight and I was just a dumpster fire. And fortunately, I got a phone call from a friend and he and I had gone on a missions trip to India together and we got to know each other pretty well. And then we both lived in San Luis Obispo and he called me up and he said, Hey man, there's this job opening for this mentoring program. I think you'd be a great fit. So I asked him about it. He told me, you live in this facility with the guys and you help them to learn life skills. I remember I was sitting at my desk and I'm going, John, I'm the mess. <laughs> I'm the dumpster fire here. I should be the one that's getting mentored versus the other way around. So anyway, I go to the interview and beautiful 20 acre area with rolling green hills and there's a pet resort on the property and it's been in existence for like 20 years at that time. Walk up to this old farmhouse built in 187, I think was the year 89. It's just beautiful, idyllic. And I'm like, this is amazing. Knock on the door, the director and the president let me in. We have an hour and a half long conversation. And at the end, I feel like I'm just being pressed into the couch that I'm sitting on. It's the old ratty couch, old blue shag carpet, a big giant wood entertainment center on the left. And they, we stand up, shake hands. And Jack, the president says, do you want the job? I'm like, wow, right now. He's just asking me right now, do I want the job? Which meant I'm moving out of my apartment, moving away from my roommate, living in this house with up to six guys that are really lost and struggling in life, drugs, alcohol, broken families, abuse, all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I just said yes. And then I worked there for nine years around the pet resort, three and a half years around the program for another four years and was mentored the whole time by the president of the program. And he had run 30 businesses successfully. So he's a serial entrepreneur to the highest degree. And every week at lunch, I'd get mentored by him. And then I could put those things into practice as I ran the pet resort and as I ran the nonprofit. But what I realized is the guys in the program, 18 to 25 year olds, their way out, besides being loved on and encouraged and learning some life skills, their way out of their lifestyles was to get into the trades. And when I finally made that connection with my history, I switched my business up to more focus on that. And eventually I'm going to open a nonprofit out here that does the exact same thing in the Pacific Northwest. And long story short, I'm using this network that I'm building to also eventually build a nonprofit. So there's the little bit long-ended version of it, but that's the why behind it for me. And it's so necessary. And in this digital world where things are going faster and faster and faster, things are changing, things are volatile and uncertain. There's an investment that, back to that apprenticeship concept, apprenticing not just on the skills of the, the job or the trade, but the skills of life and the skills of people and relationships. I was just talking to two retirees this morning, and we were talking about that gap that exists from what we know to where we were before we knew that. It's a journey that we go on that we forget. And it's so easy to forget what it took for us to get here. 
And I hear people all the time saying, they're just not teaching that these days. And I question, were they ever actually teaching this? Or did you just pick this up? Or you had someone, a, a mentor, a teacher, a coach who invested in you? Because it's probably not in the, the classroom kind of context where we learn these skills and traits and abilities. So I think it's such a rich opportunity, like you were describing, to invest in that new generation, any generation, to keep passing this on or laying down the skills, building people up and developing them for their own individual future so that we can multiply and flourish as a community, as a culture, as a world. Yeah, I mean, honestly, in the world of business, in the world of our families, I think there's two very practical things you can do. One of them is extremely practical. But the first one is be great at being present and listening to people. And obviously in your personal life, that makes a ton of sense. But also in the workplace, be present and be able to listen. And that's what these guys that got mentored needed. That's what so many people need is just someone to shut up and freaking listen to them. Hear what their story is, hear what's going on with them. And they can then share that because for whatever reason in their past, nobody did that or they didn't happen enough or they haven't been prepared to share that. But if you create that context in your workplace, your context in your life where you can truly listen to people, then this is huge. And then the very practical piece of that is make some eye contact. There's so many men that are terrified to make eye contact and lock in and make eye contact for an extended period of time. It, it makes them cry. It literally makes them cry because it's so scary to do that because it brings trust and it, and it brings empathy. And men struggle with that, especially to lock in, make eye contact. And so for me, often a test that I have of myself is how much time have I spent making eye contact with my kids and my wife? And if I reflect upon that and I realize that I'm not making much eye contact, it's been a bad week by default, because you can only make eye contact with someone if you're in person with them. I mean, I know you can kind of fake it online and I get it, but really eyeball to eyeball is the key here. You can do that in the workplace in a non-creepy way and really impact people's lives and help them to be far more productive and build that trust. And that benefits your business significantly and it benefits the relationship as well. Yeah, the in-person opportunities we have. We have so much opportunity in front of us to impact people significantly on a, a personal level, just to pay attention to someone and value them. There are so many examples that always seem like they make their way onto our local radio station does the, can I get an amen segment? And this is the, the country station every afternoon. The guy has his, his segment. He tells a good story of good news or hope or something like that. And why are those so rare or so celebrated? Why do they have to be? Why can't that become our everyday and our, our natural strategy? Yep, it's true. I don't know who introduced this to me. I can't wish I could give them credit, but I started to do something called a one thing journal or a one good thing journal. And essentially Every morning, I reflect on the day before in my interactions with my kids and my wife. And then I come up with one good thing that I see in them, and I type it down into my journal. And, you know, I'm on day 33 or whatever it is. And it's really cool because it's changing my mindset about my kids. It's changing my mindset about my wife. And ultimately, we project onto people our perspectives, but then... That's the perspective that we get, which means we're creating that perspective. So in other words, 
if I think my wife is sloppy, I don't think this, but if I think my wife is sloppy and I find ways to prove that to be true, it will become true, at least from my perspective. And she may even manifest it because I keep pressing into it. But if I find ways that I think my wife is amazing and my kids are amazing and I press into that, then that's what's going to happen for them from my perspective, for sure. But also in reality, this one good thing journal has been really cool and it hasn't been hard either. It's not like I'm sitting there scratching my head going, what the heck did they do that was good yesterday? Or what do I notice about them and their character that's good? It's been easy and it's not the same thing over and over. It's been really rewarding to do that and pat, pat pay that forward into the workplace too. And you think about it, this employee that, that you all you have is this perspective of they suck. Well, you're going to have to justify that all the time and you're thinking, and so you're finding ways to prove that you're right. But if you go, wait, maybe, maybe they don't. I challenged an architecture client with this. I, he, he has an employee that's struggling a bit. And, and I, and I asked him, how often do you find good things about him? And he was challenged by that. And he, he started to shift in that direction with this employee. And the employee has improved as a result faster than he was before. And they measure this stuff. So he, they know he's improving. He's more efficient. <laughs> so they know it. He's still not there yet, but they know it. And it, that's just a mindset shift about the way that the owner is thinking about the employee. Amazing. And my friend, Jeremy, who was back on episode 22, he talked on that episode about the peace index. And one of my favorite chapters in his book on the peace index is his rhythm and what his beginning of day, middle day, end of day process is for himself to reflect back. And it's what you're describing there. And I've worked to incorporate on my own daily sheet. A whole third of this is looking back on the day. Am I perfect at looking back at the day? No, <laughs> not nearly. But but it's that exercise. And, and like you said, it's taking that helps us shift our mindset, find what we're grateful for, find the opportunity and recognize the good things because it's easy. It's really easy to get swept up in the hard, the challenging, you know, going back to where we started with whether we're hiring or we're working through a transition, there's always something that we can be worried about. Let's find the opportunity. To me, this culture seems to wear the badge of life is hard. And they proudly wear that badge of I had a bad day or I'm anxious or whatever it is. They're wearing that badge, but that's all mindset. The way you look at stuff. I mean, we can go all the way to, I can't remember the name of the author that wrote the book about his experience in, in the concentration camps, but that's the worst circumstances humans have gone through. And there's others as well, but that's one of the worst people have gone through yet. What was his name? I can't remember his name. Anyway, he still had hope in the midst of all of that. And it's like, just because your car doesn't work, doesn't mean you need to lose hope in life. Like there's this attitude, Victor Frankl is the name. There's this attitude that this badge of man, my life is hard and woe is me. I think it hinders us so much and it doesn't allow us to think clearly and solve our problems because we're so focused on being worried or being anxious or being concerned about, about life. And that might sound a little flippant for people that are going through some tough things and I get it, but I stand here right now as someone that is constantly in pain. I'm constantly in pain because I have some autoimmune disease that I've seen 13 doctors for. They have no idea what's going on. So I'm constantly in pain. I can't close this hand. I'm almost 40 and I can't close this freaking pinky because it hurts too much to close. 
If I lift my hands over my head, it hurts a lot to do that. My hip is in pain 95% of the day. I still do CrossFit. I still am very physical with my kids. We go snowshoeing. I still do physical activities with my wife, right? So my mindset says, I don't care. I'm going to do this stuff anyway, even though I'm constantly in pain. Or I could wear the badge of I'm always hurt. Feel bad for me. <laughs> ah, Sorry, it's a soapbox, but it drives me crazy because it's ruining people's lives. Yes. One of my favorite books that's over here on my shelf is Jeff Henderson's Know What You're For, Not What You're Against. And it's a, a great perspective shift to look at the for and be hopeful. Look for the opportunity. What could happen? What could we do? What could be? And let's let's get after that. So as you look back on your career and the experiences that you've had and you're investing and coaching and mentoring, what's one key insight that you've learned along the way that you feel is a must to pass along that you wish you had learned earlier in your career and experience? Oh man, just one. Okay. So I would say the one insight is people. And what I mean by that is find individuals in your life or give yourself permission to be found by individuals in your life that will take you to another level, right? So mentors and coaches and friends and family, that when you interact with them, they make you think differently. You know, that mentor that I had for nine years, he made me think differently. He had all that experience and he made me think differently, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, all these areas of life. And the second part of that, when it comes to people is they need to be uncomfortable with where you are. And what I mean by that is if a friend comes to you and is like, I'm happy with who you are, like they're content with you being you, that's a bad friend. Now, I'm not saying the friend should want to change you or the mentor should want to change you. But what I am saying is that they're willing to point out these areas where shifts need to happen. And then you need to be willing to change you. Because if they're content with, oh, you, you know, I love you how you are. Well, okay. But what's that next level? They need to be pushing you and willing to speak out about that. And often we surround ourselves with people that are giving us platitudes and they don't challenge us in our current state of being. That's something that I have now in my life. And I've had it for 20 plus years and I'm very fortunate, but I think a lot of people are afraid to go down that path because it's pretty vulnerable. Yeah, it absolutely is. And these two retirees I was talking to this morning, we talked about the difference between being nice, being harsh and telling the truth. And there's something about how we tell the truth, how we can convey the impact, the importance, the detail that all of us have that path, that road to continuous improvement and inviting someone to follow that journey, to take a next step. You're right. It's not about pointing out what's wrong, but pointing out the hope, the opportunity of what's next and what could be. While giving the person space to be also, right? You could just be, you can be in this state of just going to be here. I'm a plateau for a little bit so I can be here and do life. We don't always have to grow. I think our culture pushes that a little bit too much too, is you always have to be doing and growing and growing your business, growing yourself. It's like, well, yes, there's a time for that, but every, you know, everything has a season. So this mentor, these friends need to also recognize what season you're in and you need to obviously recognize it too. So we're not, cause that's exhausting. We don't want to push ourselves too much. Yeah. 
can't go too fast. Got to go at just the right speed for each person. And it takes a calibration. It takes figuring out what each person needs in, in their own speed, not rushing it, but also not letting it go on too long. Well, how can people find you, follow you, engage with you, and look at the ways that you are calling people forward and calling them up to find their own hope? Yeah, for sure. Visit blueshirtcoaching.com. That's my website. You can get to me there. Blue Shirt Coaching is my handle on most social media. Find me on LinkedIn. But the number one place I'd recommend people to, to go is go to my Facebook group. So it's you go to Facebook and then you look up Blue Shirt Group. I couldn't use my name, unfortunately, but it's called Blue Shirt Group. And it's a growing group of business owners that are looking to mastermind together, to share insights, to ask questions of one another. And in fact, today I have office hours. So from 1130 to 1230, I'm going to just be available for my community to ask me questions and to exchange conversations. And I learn from them as well. So I spend an hour just talking with the community. So if people want to check out that Facebook group, they can click join and I'll, I'll get you in there quick and you could potentially join me for office hours. That's great. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes at newgenerationleader.fm. Kyle, thanks so much for the conversation today. It's great talking about the people side of business, investing in people and helping businesses grow and flourish by focusing on their people. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for listening to the New Generation Leader Podcast. Subscribe today on your favorite podcasting platform. Ready to solve your leadership crisis? Download the show notes and unlock your true leadership potential at newgenerationleader.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening today, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the New Generation Leader Podcast. Thanks again for listening to today's show. Don't forget to check out the New Generation Leader gift guide at newgenerationleader.fm slash gift. Thanks to Brian, Jim, Jay, and the team behind the scenes. We'll see you next time on the New Generation Leader podcast.